series here, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit together, and I'm going to continue uh, that a bit this morning. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, it's uh, Galatians 5 we're going to be looking at. We're going to uh, be starting at verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who wants to grow as a Christian? Yeah, it's, it's not a trick question. I think we all do. Um, those who follow Christ, we all want, want to progress. We want to grow. But we would probably each have different ideas of what that actually means, what that looks like. What is Christian maturity? What are we aiming for? As part of my work with um, STEP, a, a schools work charity, we're lucky to each year have some time at the Global Leadership Summit which is a, a, a conference organized by, well, Willow Creek Church in Chicago and Bill Hybels, but it's kind of podcasted by video to uh, a local church in St. Uh, Albans. Uh, it's a vineyard church. And so they host the videos, and we, we get the benefit of the speakers. And one thing really stood out to me this year from the Global Leadership Summit, and it was a short phrase by Bill Hybels. He said, what gets measured gets done. What gets measured gets done. We've been applying that to our work with STEP. You know, traditionally, we've measured um, the number of activities we do. So we do lessons and assemblies, and we've, been, and we've counted how many lessons, assemblies, mentoring sessions, lunchtime clubs, retreat days, and the like we do in schools. And we usually get a number of about 1,500 or so over the course of a year. But is that a measure of effectiveness? So we've been asking ourselves, well, is that actually being effective? Just Is it the number of activities that matters? Or is it something deeper that we're aiming for? to see young lives changed for Jesus, to, to give young people enough information to choose for or against Christ. So back to my, quest- my question about growing as a Christian. What are we aiming for? How do we measure our growth? Is it extending our Bible knowledge or being able to read through the whole Bible? Is it having a consistent quiet time with God each day? Is it how close to God we feel? Is it to see success in a particular ministry like, uh, like youth or like caring for the poor? Is it using our spiritual gifts more? Perhaps it's seeing people healed through us, God using us to do that, or prophesying for people. Is it evangelism, seeing others come to faith in Christ? Is it avoiding sin or becoming free in a particular area of your life? This morning I want to argue that Galatians 5, the passage we just read, gives an excellent benchmark for Christian maturity. Rather than asking ourselves, how many people has God used me to heal this year? Or how many people have I brought to faith in Christ? Or how close to God do I feel? Good questions like those might be. 
What if the question was something like this? Am I a more loving person now than I was a year ago? Am I more joyful? Am I more filled with peace? Am I more patient? Am I more kind? Am I more good, faithful, gentle? Do I have more self-control than this time last year? So it's not like some of those other things we, we, I mentioned are, are bad aims. Take, for example, um, quiet times. That, for me, is a, an aim. I'd look, I really want to work on a consistent quiet time with God. I've got this idea of what that looks like. I've got this kind of picture of what my morning should be like, with like an alarm at five o'clock, jumping out of bed, you know, putting it to meet the day, and then, you know, um, getting straight, straight stuck into the Bible, you know, a bit of a time with, with God, praying, then going for a run, listening to worship music, coming back, fixing breakfast for myself, making myself look, pretty and pristine, making breakfast for the wife, making breakfast for the baby, changing the baby, playing interactive games and, and fun things with the baby, all this sort of stuff, then making my lunch, getting to work early and having time to plan the day. That, that's you know, my, my perfect picture of this is my morning, you know, morning's wonderful. Then reality. Morality is more like sleep through the alarm, just about managed to make yourself out of bed looking awful, then you know, put on a Peppa Pig DVD for, the, for Nathan just because something will keep him entertained for five minutes while I grab some breakfast. Then, you know, go to work for getting your lunch and just making it out the door. You know, that, that's more like my reality at times. What, or what about, you know, the evenings? You know, you have this, this idea of a wonderful quiet time with God before you go to bed. You know, maybe just reading a bit of scripture. So you, you open up your daily reading plan and it says, you know, read Leviticus chapters 1 to 10. <laughs> So you open up the pages of your Bible, and it says, if the offering is a burnt offering from the Lord, from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. And if the offering is a <laughs> and you're gone. Yeah, maybe that's something more like reality for us. But it is a good aim to, work, to, ha to have a quiet time with God. But let's say somehow we do it. We're getting more consistent with our quiet times. We get on top of them. We're ahead in our read the Bible in a year plan. Wow, who's ever done that? And we just feel amazing. We feel like a super duper Christian. You know, we happen to mention at small group that, oh yes, I think that references Deuteronomy 28, which I happen to be reading this morning. And, you know, we, we feel amazing. But that's not Christian maturity, is it? That's not, that's not what we're aiming for. That's not what it is. It might sound impressive, but doesn't really fool God. Having a consistent quiet time is a wonderful vehicle for growing your relationship with God. But it's not the big picture. It's not the overall aim. It's just a vehicle. So Christian maturity isn't a tick list that we can tick off. Yes, we're ahead in our plan. Well, what about feelings? You know, what about the, how close to God I feel? Now, let me tell you, if, if you base your Christian maturity on how close to God you feel, you're probably going to be in for some real times of disappointment and pain. Your feelings will come and go. They go up, they go down. There's a spiritual truth that God will never leave you nor forsake you. He never deserts us. That's the truth. But also there is experiences of feeling distance from God. There's experiences where it feels like you're in a dry place spiritually. And there's times where we all ask, God, where are you? Where are you? And it's at these times that our faith can actually really grow when we learn to trust God, even when our feelings are going up and down. Every mature Christian I know, every single one, has been through times where their faith felt dry and they felt distant from God. So we can't base our growth on how we feel. So I want to argue that 
these fruits of the Spirit are better benchmarks of Christian maturity. As we grow in these, they're just signs that God is at work in us. He's bringing these things um, to life. But how do they grow? How do these fruits grow? Well, let's take a closer look at the passage. And I think as we do, we'll, we'll discover that there's both an encouragement and a challenge. The first thing I want you to notice is verse 16. There's a command there. So I say, walk by the Spirit. There's a command to walk by the Spirit. There's an active participation to a relationship with God. You definitely choose in each and every day. I say this because some of us seem to think that when we chose to follow Jesus, he was going to do all the walking. Yeah, it's like, think of those carriages from ancient Egypt. Do you know the ones with like pharaohs inside? They'd have like these long wooden poles and slaves at each corner. And the pharaoh would sit in this luxurious carriage and the, whilst the slaves carried the pharaoh wherever the pharaoh wanted to go. And some of us seem to have to have this image that actually when we become a Christian, God's going to do all the carrying and all the walking and we're just going to sit in the carriage and be carried along for the ride. So he's going to do all the transformation and all we need to do is just sit there. I've got to say, it doesn't actually work like that. It is possible to be a Christian and yet mature very little over your life. It's possible to thwart the work of the Spirit in your life that you actually transform very little into the likeness of Christ. You can continually to doggedly hold on to your old way of life. You know, Paul wrote to one church saying, you know, you guys, it's almost like you're like babies because you, you, you should be having solid food, but you keep needing milk. You keep needing the elementary truths of God again and again. Okay, and he was saying, you guys should be teachers of, of, of others by now. But in, a, in actual fact, you, you, you're staying in the same place. You're like needing milk again and again and again. Following in Christ is, is about more than just turning up to church on a Sunday occasionally and, and filling a seat. There's a cost and there's a purpose to it. There's a, this work for you to do. God has a plan for your life. And it's never too late to begin that adventure. And it is an adventure. There's nothing more satisfying than a life lived to the full in the adventure of following Jesus. And the challenge is, will you step up to that adventure or will you settle for less? So the challenge is to walk by the Spirit. There's an active participation to our relationship with God. We can't just sit on the sidelines and expect to grow. As I say, a challenge and an encouragement. Journey with me to verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul now switches phrases to, being, to saying we are led by the Spirit. See, some of us, rather than um, putting no effort into our relationship with God, some of us can sometimes put all our efforts in the wrong places. I say this because I can be one of these. Some people, the moment I spoke about considering whether we are more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, uh, gentle, and self-controlled, the moment I said those things, they mentally started thinking, oh no, oh no, I'm not, I'm not at all any of those things since last year. Oh no, I've got to grow, I've got to be more patient, I've got to be more patient, I've got to be more patient now. It's like, you already had that kind of mental thing going on, oh no, I need to achieve those things. If you find yourself making your relationship with God more like a self-help program, something's off there. If you find yourself constantly struggling for a sense of peace, you, that you always feel like there's something you need to change, maybe you, you lack assurance at times that God just really loves you as you are right now, that he's proud to call you his child, that he smiles over you. you know, let me encourage you, and this will sound like a very weird encouragement, you can't. You can't change yourself. 
Not really, not like really deeply. You know, you might, um, if you work really, really hard, let's say on being patient with uh, your boss at work, you might, on the exterior side, your behavior, manage to, to work really, really hard to change that, for a time at least, or with your children at home. But to really change your heart, you can't. That's the work of God inside you. You've got to place your trust in the right place there. You've got to ask God to come and do the work inside you. Yeah, so that's why Paul writes to be led by the Spirit. Being led sounds much more passive, doesn't it, than walking. But there's a surrender to being led. So yes, there's an active walk in our, in our, um, in, in our walk with God. There's an active side to it. But there's also an act of surrendering to his voice inside you. It's his grace that empowers us to say no to ungodliness. That's what Titus 2 uh, verses 11 and 12 says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Let me encourage you, God has not left you alone. You're not meant to walk this Christian walk on your own. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's placed his spirit inside of you. So stop trying to sort out all your own problems. Because <laughs> God wants to. He wants to come in and help. But sometimes we, we so, get so stuck to uh, what I can do that we forget to really ask God for his help. We try to struggle on our own. Ask him to come in and change you. Dare to be led by his spirit. And then the Bible is, is completely realistic about life. It doesn't paint a, a fluffy bunny's pretty rainbows picture about how wonderful everything will be. Your verse 17 reminds us there's a battle. Verse 17 says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. And there's that part of us still, isn't there? That part of us that wants our own way still, that, that selfish part of us that, you know, that wants to take shortcuts, or the part that says, oh, it doesn't really matter if no one sees, or the part of us that just would fill our lives with self-satisfaction and with comfort and with taking it easy. That, that part of us which, which says me first. And Paul says this part of us is in conflict with the spirit in us. There's a battle going on. I mentioned earlier that some of us might make our goal um, as a Christian in, in terms of maturity to avoid sin or to gain freedom in a particular area. And Paul's very real about this stuff. In verse 19 to 21, he, he just lists a load of stuff and says, you know, don't live like that. You know, um, sexual immorality, you know, uh, impurity, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. He says, don't live like that. But notice he doesn't stop there. He then goes on to list the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's saying, yes, avoid those things, but pursue these things. Don't just think of the negative, look to the positive. I was having a chat with a young person about this the other day, because this really matters, actually. If you find yourself as someone who, uh, increasing your Christian walk, is only just trying to avoid sin, it's like, that's like, that's all, all, all your, your walk is, is like, I just need to avoid this, and I just need to avoid this. Chances are your image of God will start to transform so that God is just someone who's kind of there to catch you out when you make a mistake. He's a hard taskmaster who's just looking out for when you make a mistake. And also, it's, it's incredibly miserable and difficult and, and sad way to live. It doesn't bring you to life. If all, you, all you're aiming to do is avoid that, avoid that. I would also even say that actually 
it's quite a dangerous road into where it goes. Think about the Pharisees. You know, they're always, always painted as the bad guys in the scriptures. But think about what, where that came from. You know, um, they added a lot of laws to, the, to God's law to keep themselves safe. They didn't want to go close to breaking God's law. So in terms of tithing or Sabbath, they, they put a lot of laws around God's law to say, no, okay, we don't even want to get close to, to breaking that. And th- so they had this very critical and negative existence. And then came Jesus, and he totally broke that apart. He, he hung around with tax collectors. He ate and drank with sinners. He, he went to wedding feasts. You know, he, he strikes up a one-to-one conversation with a woman who's had a number of different partners. He's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And you can see the very heart of the matter when um, there's like a showdown. And it's uh, about whether Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus asks them and says, well, which is right, to do good or not to do good? But the Pharisees are thinking, no, God's law says you must not work on the Sabbath. And if you're going about healing people, you're working. So you're breaking God's law and God will be displeased with that. See, they've turned it into an avoid, avoid, must not, must not, must not. And they've missed the heart of the law, which says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is so frustrated with them. And he reaches out and he heals the man in plain view of them because his law is love. So many Christians can turn their relationship into, with God into this, just avoid sin, avoid sin, as if God was waiting to catch them out. And I don't hear what I'm not saying. Pursuing righteousness is good. But righteousness is about loving your neighbor, not just avoiding sin. It has a positive action, not just a negative. You know, I think R.T. Kendall says it best when he says, live by the Spirit and you will fulfill the law accidentally. And notice that in this passage too. Paul, Paul reminds us twice that we're not under the law. In verse 18, he says, but if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And verse 23, against the fruits of the Spirit, there is no law. Paul wants to remind us that we've been freed from all that. The law has been cancelled. It's been nailed to the cross, that written code of accusations against us, and it has nothing to do with us anymore, those who follow Christ. But we are to live by the Spirit. Follow God. Follow his Spirit. Follow love. I'm drawing towards a close now, um, and we're going to have a chance to pray. But I, I want to come back to that original question. What are we aiming for? Or perhaps we could flip it around and see it from God's perspective. What is God aiming for in you? What does he want for you? God wants to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. There's... Um, I don't know if you know, the word Christian originally was an insult. It was attached, um, it meant little Christ. And when people saw these, these guys going around, um, the followers of Christ, the, they called them little Christs because they were trying to be like Christ. Little Christ, you Christians. And it was an insult. But you know, I think we're quite proud to bear that name, a little Christ. I want that. I want to be a little Christ. And yeah, that's really what God wants to do in us. He wants to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And it's not that you lose who you are, that we all become the same. It's actually more like we discover something of who you were always made to be in Jesus. It's not a kind of a losing of yourself. That's what God wants for you. And Jesus is the perfect embodiment of all of these fruits of the Spirit. Jesus is the most loving, the most peaceful, the most patient, the most joyful, the most kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled person ever to walk the earth. 
If, as a little exercise, if you want to, pick a gospel and look for the fruits of the Spirit in Jesus' life. I, I did it just looking through. It was, it was really interesting to see, well, where are these fruits of the Spirit in Jesus' life? Where does he embody them? It's really interesting. It's absolutely packed full of them. Uh, a few examples is, um, think about Jesus' patience with the disciples. This bunch of guys, we were going to be the start of the church, but they get so many things wrong. You know, they, he's, having a, um, he's telling, warning them against the yeast of the, Pharise- of the Sadducees, uh, of the yeast of Pharisees and Sadducees, and, and they start going, oh, I think he's, think he's telling us we should have bought some bread this time, guys. <laughs> yeah, they just don't get it at all. And he's just like, why are you still talking about bread? And, but he's got patience with them to train them, to, to get them ready so that they will start the church. Um, or think about um, his self-control. You know, when he's alone in the desert for 40, year, 40 days and he doesn't eat a thing and Satan comes to tempt him, but he's self-controlled and, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand on God's word. Or his faithfulness in the Garden of Gethsemane. When, yeah, he, he's asking God if there's another way, but your will be done. I'll go your way. His faithfulness to the call. And of course, his love we see supremely embodied on the cross. He's been stripped, he's been mocked, he's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's, he's exhausted, and then he's dying. And even in that moment when he's dying, I mean, different gospel accounts, I love looking at, at what Jesus is like. Even when he's a dying man and he's bearing all the wrath of the Father for all the sins that we've committed and all the people around him have put him there, he still exudes love for those people. You know, he still takes the time to unite his mother with, uh, with John, the disciple, so that his mother would be taken care of. He's looking to her. He's looking to the thief on the cross next to him, or the both of them, and offering opportunities. And one of them says, do you know what? It might be the last moment of my life, but I want what you've got. Yeah, his love is incredible. That's still God's response to us. That love. He loves you. He'll never give up on you. He loves you with an everlasting love. Whether you've accepted him today or not, you need to know God loves you. 